Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Nice to see you all here. My name is Brian McGough. I'm from the School of Philosophy in Dublin. And the talk is entitled Philosophy and True Confidence. And the subtitle is In What Can We Have True Confidence? And if you begin by looking at what is confidence, the word itself means with faith. So you could ask the question really is in what do we place our faith? Or what do we have faith in? Now we can only be truly confident if we're true to ourselves. And to be true to ourselves we must live in accordance with our true nature. Or living in accordance with our true essence, our real essence. Scripture and the wise say that we are pure, perfect and complete full of consciousness, full of knowledge, and full of bliss. This true essence, that's how they would describe it. We are self-reliant, not born, we don't die, and we're unaffected by anything. We're free from fear and ever at peace. Now to know this and to experience it all the time, would be to live in accordance with that true nature, that true essence. Now, if this was how we saw ourselves, we could never really lack true confidence. Nothing could really ever disturb us if we really saw ourselves as the wise describe us. What would ever disturb us? In fact, what could ever disturb us? Now, to begin, it would be good to get a sense of true perspective on things. In fact, I would think this is essential, especially at the beginning of such a talk. So the first thing is that we are eternal, limitless and real. And everything else is transient, limited and just an appearance. And just to have that very simple sense of perspective on things would be a good start. Man is naturally confident because it is the nature of myself to entertain no doubt. And if you look to a child, this is self-evident. The child lives as himself and knows that it is lovable and can do anything. Much to our horror sometimes, but it literally knows it can do anything. The child is totally confident in itself. It never doubts its own lovability. Now we could see that as very encouraging because it's, it's not that long ago that we enjoyed that state constantly. So it's not that far back. The child doesn't seek to impress anybody. It doesn't try to be entertaining. It doesn't try to be likeable or informed. It doesn't need designer labels. It doesn't need a fancy pram, good looks. It doesn't need anything to be content. It doesn't need anything to be truly confident. The child has the confidence to give its love fully and unconditionally. It approaches the tasks of walking and talking and reading and writing and a whole variety of skills with absolute confidence. Now, if we were to take up skiing in comparison to the way a child takes up walking and we fell as often as the child does, 
it would cross our minds that perhaps we weren't really cut out for skiing. But it would never cross the child's mind that it's not cut out for walking. You wouldn't imagine a child thinking, well, perhaps I'm destined to live all of my days in the pram, <laughs> which would get very complex as, <laughs> as it got bigger. So I would see that as very encouraging, that this confidence, this true confidence, this essential self isn't that far away. And it wasn't that long ago since we enjoyed it constantly. So the question really is, how do we lose it? How do we lose this real confidence in ourselves? One simple answer is that we forget. Mind has the capacity to remember and forget. And when we forget the truth about ourselves, the mind creates a false self, which we then take to be true and real. This false self is based on identification. And this is identifying with our body, mind and heart. And we might ordinarily refer to this as ego. Now being false, the ego can never enjoy true confidence. Just by its very nature, it is false in itself. So it can never enjoy something that is true. What it can enjoy is false confidence, low confidence or no confidence but it can never enjoy true confidence. So if we look to false confidence, this is a confidence based on the attributes of the body, the mind and the heart. If you take the body, there may be a false confidence due to youth or good looks or strength, height, health, vitality, but they'll all be physical attributes. If you look to the mind, there may be a false confidence due to education, learning or qualifications of one kind or another, or the power of speech. And if we look to the heart, there may be a false confidence due to just having been endowed with a, an optimistic nature or an extroverted personality. And the ego may exude a false confidence by identifying with possessions of one kind or another. And this may have been kicked around a lot in the last 12 months, maybe. <laughs> identifying with things like cars and houses and clothes and profession, position, wealth, nationality, friends, associates, the schools we went to or didn't go to, the various skills we might have, the talents, but it's really identification with something of that menu. Now, because the ego identifies with all these things, the result can be an arrogance or a pride, kind of a type of a Lucifer. And this is not necessarily pride in things great or large. There can be an inverted pride, kind of identification with unfashionable things. It's possible to identify with your bicycle identify with not having nice clothes and only buying from a second-hand shop, for instance. Identifying with no ambition, uh, identifying with an idea of dropping out of this, the so-called materialistic rat race. And that can all be ego-driven as well. 
Confidence based on the ego is false because the ego is not constant. And it's totally situation dependent. True confidence is constant. So it's independent of time and place and circumstances. It's independent of how things are going. So we may be confident in ourselves until we have lost our job and then we doubt our usefulness to anybody. Or we may believe ourselves to be attractive to others when young and good-looking. But as we grow older, we doubt our ability to win the hearts of another. Or we don't get a promotion and lose confidence in our value. Now, in these circumstances, the truth is we never had confidence to lose in the first place. What we're working with is expectation, and it's false expectation. When these expectations do not materialize, we are left with a sense of disappointment or a feeling of being let down. False confidence is all to do with projecting ourselves. It's putting on a show rather than just being ourselves. And this is why we can feel very awkward when there is a silence. Do you ever notice how quick we might be to rush in and fill a silence? And because when there is silence, we're just being asked to be ourselves. There's no projecting required, but it can be very uncomfortable. Without the projecting, we may think we're not impressive. And this leads to an important point. False confidence is totally dependent on how we perceive that others see us. If they see us in a good light, then we may maintain the confidence. If they do not see us in a good light and we know about it, then we begin to doubt ourselves. We may even project ourselves even more in order to change the view. Or we could withdraw into ourselves. We could even withdraw and be a little resentful or defensive. Most false confidence is situational. So we become accustomed to certain situations, we feel comfortable, and we feel a certain ease in them. And then we enjoy a certain level of confidence, but it's only a, a kind of familiarity. It's not really confidence as such. Like we're all very confident in the bathroom, aren't we? Well, I would hope you are. Because <laughs> it's very familiar and it, there's no demand and there's nothing required of us. And it's very easy. But if things become unfamiliar, things suddenly change. We suddenly find ourselves in new situations, new circumstances, new people. A young person might say they hope they don't go bald until they are older. What they mean is that they hope they have got their woman before they go bald. Thinking that to win a woman's heart is dependent on having hair on your head. Do we recognize that we can lose confidence when situations or circumstances change? Even something as small as a stain on your tie or a stain on your dress could dent the confidence. This false confidence may not reveal itself until challenged. So we might never discover it. It could go on for years. It's like 
prejudice. We may not realize we hold certain prejudices unless we're actually put into certain situations. So it's just the challenge of the situation can draw it out. In a similar way, the challenge of some situations can actually bring out that the confidence we formerly held fast to was really false. So it can go unnoticed for a long time. We can even be unaware that we need certain things to bolster our confidence. False confidence is generally comparative. We compare ourselves with other people and depending on the outcome of this comparison, we feel confident or not. And there's a range we feel confident within, a certain range. If someone is a bit richer or a bit poorer than us, we may feel comfortable or confident in regard to our wealth. If they are much richer than us, we may feel inadequate. Like when we invite them to dinner in our house, returning an evening that we had spent in their more luxurious home. If people are much poorer than us, we can also feel a lack of confidence. How to relate to them, feeling different and separate from them. Sometimes you see this awkwardness in a boss trying to communicate with more junior staff. There's an awkwardness about it. So when we're in the company of our own or those somewhat similar to us, we can feel confident. Outside this range, we can feel quite awkward. The very tall person may stoop, the very small person may wear large heels or tend to sit at parties, all to blend in a little more. We do want to be a little different and a bit special and not too ordinary or bland, but also we don't really want to stand out too much. So we will dress up to go to the party feeling special and noticeable, and we will go in confidence. However, if we mistakenly think it's a fancy dress party and we're the only one to make this mistake, <laughs> no matter how good our fancy dress costume is, we might be mortified. When we meet people, we may ask a whole series of questions, which is not really about finding out about the other person. It could be just to find out how we compare with them. If we are comfortable with the comparison, then we are confident and comfortable in their company. Otherwise, we move on until we find someone or somewhere where our false confidence can operate unchallenged and undisturbed. So that's false confidence. If we look now to low or no confidence, I don't know how low we can get here. <laughs> like high self-confidence or high self-esteem is based on two ideas. I'm lovable and I'm capable. It's like a feeling, I'm lovable and I can. Low self-esteem or low confidence is based on the reverse. I'm not so lovable or I can't. I'm not able to. Now, other than the wise, the fully enlightened, everybody entertains to some degree that they are not lovable and not capable at some point, at some time. And if we do this to a large degree, then the confidence will be low. If we continuously tell ourselves we're not lovable and we can't, then the confidence will go down. 
it's not a universal phenomenon, but one limiting idea tending to dominate more often in the male than in the female. Ordinarily, the, the female has a greater concern about her lovability and thus the greater attention to attractiveness, clothes, makeup, etc. Ordinarily, the male has a greater concern about his capability and thus the greater dedication and energy given to success in career, etc. These are generalities. They do not necessarily apply to every particular situation. So that's low or no confidence based on these two sets of ideas. It becomes very important when dealing with children to keep ensuring that they are lovable and they can, rather than they're not so lovable and they can't. Now if we look to the fruits of this false or low confidence, what's the effect of it? There will be a particular traits and their opposites. A person may be particularly aggressive or passive. So you have these opposite sets of traits. They may be remarkably rigid in their views or like a human chameleon changing depending on whom they're talking to. They may be loud and overbearing and dogmatic, unable to listen to others, but try desperately to convert others to their way of thinking. They may be loners or desperately seeking company, afraid to be alone, afraid to be alone with themselves. It may not be that they like others' company, it's maybe that they don't like their own. On their own, they think of themselves normally negatively. At least in company, they may forget themselves a little. There will also be particular attributes present, and I'm just going to touch on five of these. So if the confidence is low, false, or no, we could find these five attributes. And the first one is fear. There'll be a lot of fear in the life, fear of loss of things that bolster the confidence, fear of loss of wealth or inadequate wealth. This will lead to either a very conservative wealth strategy full of savings and insurance policies and pensions or a reckless wealth strategy basically trying to accumulate large amounts of wealth normally by good fortune, hoping the lotto might come in. There will be fear of loss of relationship, which might lead to excessive control, or a neediness, lack of forgiveness. With regard to position, the fear of loss of it will make them phoning yes-men to their own bosses and possibly control freaks in relation to their subordinates. Not trusting themselves truly, they are unable to trust others. They do not delegate, they do not develop those under them. The existence of fear will result in a lot of anger in the life. This will either be suppressed out of fear, leading to an outwardly agreeable but inwardly resentful character. Or the anger might be displayed freely. Fear always produces anger. If you look at how you feel when you're suddenly started. It can often bring out a, an anger. 
The second attribute would be desires. Because attributes and things external bolster the confidence, they'll have great need for these things. The big car, the big house, the successful career will be particularly important. Labels, brands would be important to them. Not the quality of the clothes or the designs, but just the labels. If they are rich, they will have an apartment and boat in the Mediterranean and possibly pay for the building in the university named after them. They will be dedicated followers of fashion. They will tend to be followers. They could allow idiots to run the country. <laughs> Their ideas will be borrowed from others. If they say a film is great and someone else says it's rubbish, they may modify the view to suit. Not trusting themselves, they are full of strong but false convictions. This illusion of strength allows them to rule the weak. And another trait is judgment. Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. The two judgments are done by one and the same person. If we're judging others, we are judging ourselves. The tendency of those with false or low confidence is to judge themselves negatively. Occasionally there are those that see themselves as better looking, more intelligent. But the overwhelming majority of mankind sees itself negatively. And the greatest defilement of ourselves is continual criticism. This judgment means that the person is never at rest. When they are alone, the criticism of themselves. When they are in company, the criticism is of others. It's like a constant evaluation of both themselves and others, but in a negative way. There's a little voice in the head that never shuts up. This voice passes judgment on everything. The eyes are too close, too much makeup, the coffee's too strong. She's not listening to me. How poorly dressed. He can't drive. It's like, I think it was referred to one time as Mihol O'Hare syndrome. It's kind of a constant evaluating and commenting. We're looking at these attributes that are present when the confidence is low. And the fifth one is unadventurous. They will seek out the known rather than the unknown. Lives will be cautious. They won't be the first to buy or the first to leave the party or the first to speak. They will find out where the general level lies with regard to a particular situation and then speak a point of view that sort of fundamentally blends in. They will want to see what everyone is doing or where they are going before they express their own preferences. They may seek careers that offer security and either like to be alone or lost in a large office somewhere. Their clothes, cars, houses, etc. will all be chosen with a view to how others will see them. Will they gain acceptability or not? Decision-making will be difficult. There will be the challenge of anticipating others' responses. Also, there will be the constant entertainment of doubt. This will lead to inaction or excessive action in the form of planning and catering for a whole variety of potential outcomes. Now, the fruits of true confidence to connect more with that true essence, that true self. What are the fruits of that? The person who is truly confident has a quietness or a stillness about them. They speak with certainty but also flexibility. 
they're happy to change their minds. They're happy to be proven wrong because they see themselves relieved of ignorance. Just think how we respond when we're proven wrong. They're not afraid of saying something erroneous, so they say what is on their minds. They're not afraid of making mistakes, they see them as opportunities for learning. Despite the confidence in their own views, or perhaps because of the confidence in their own views, they are good listeners and willing to take in what others have to say and contribute. They're not afraid of you suggesting changes. They're not defensive or protective. They're not converters trying to always persuade you to their way of thinking. They don't ridicule the views of others, they're inquirers. They want to know the truth. It matters not really who discovers it. They don't claim their own talent and attributes. They see themselves not as possessors of, but mediums for expression. If they are God-believers and blessed with a rare talent, they tend to see it as a gift. Apparently Pavarotti, on being asked how he'd practice six hours every day, said he felt his voice was a gift from God and he had a duty to care for it. The truly competent have a humility about them. They're generous with their knowledge in their minds and the love in their hearts. Their own abundance makes them generous. They know in truth that it is not theirs and that it is limitless. They see themselves complete in themselves. They will be self-reliant, enjoying the company of others, but not needing the company of others. Their self-confidence will not be situation-dependent or comparative. Rich or poor, known or unknown, plain or good-looking, they are confident because they are confident in themselves and in nothing else. Being confident, they are full of energy, full of adventure. The unknown does not frighten them, in fact, they would see it as a challenge. So how may we grow in confidence? How can we connect more with this true confidence? What I've done is I've just tagged six ways. and If I just touch on each of these six ways. And the first is meditation. And really, to find some way of quietening one's insides. But meditation is one method that allows you to connect with that essence, that true self within. It gives you a direct experience of that self. And the more experience of that true self, the more it influences the character. The self is then known to be eternal. There's a confidence and a knowledge that it is eternal, limitless, without fear. Knowing this to be our true self, there can only really be full confidence. So the meditation allows one to connect with that essence. But it also dissolves some of the impediments. It dissolves fear. It dissolves the propensity to judge. It frees our attachment to body and all things bodily and mind and heart. Like a child, one is then happy and confident to simply be oneself. So that's the first recommended way 
to grow in confidence. The second one is study of the scripture or study the words of the wise. Study of scripture or the words of the wise are essential because they keep telling us the truth about ourselves. And you can read one line of scripture, something in you connects with the truth of it and it can uplift. And that's the effect of the connection and the connection arises out of the study or the reading. The word study could be a little misleading. It sounds like you have to spend hours over books, but it's really to engage with the words of Scripture. Every day we should study these and reflect on the content and attempt to verify the truthfulness and experience in everyday life. The total conviction of what the wise say and the absoluteness of Scripture gives confidence to the reader. And it also provides guidance for the verification of that content. The third method is the greater use of intellect. This is just to use our minds in a more reasonable way. Doubts will undoubtedly present themselves to the mind. And in a way we can't stop doubts being presented to the mind. But we can stop the entertaining of them. We can actually stop entertaining doubt. With the entertainment of doubt, they grow. It's like whatever you attend to grows. So if I'm attending to doubts, well, that's what's growing. Ideas and assumptions and fears need to be examined. Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, said an unexamined life was not worth living. And the idea is to try and discover some principles that should guide the life rather than assumptions and ideas and notions and fears and doubts. Like what is the one principle that if I held to fast would dissolve doubts and fears and difficulties? Is there one principle that would be very particular to me as an individual? It might be easier that way to find one direction or principle to cling to that would eradicate some of the difficulties we might experience. Catherine of Siena said that if you were the person you should be, if you were the person you should be, you would set the world on fire. Isn't that beautiful? I had to read that a couple of times when I read it. And what struck me was, you know, I'm not setting the world on fire, so what is needed to get up to the mark sort of puts it up to you. If you were the person you should be, you would set the world on fire. Number four is develop the heart. We need to transcend the limiting ideas that we harbour about ourselves. And this is done by having a big heart. Read the lives of inspirational men and women. You will find that they had to overcome these challenges. Martin Luther King was a painfully shy man, but because he believed in a cause bigger than himself, he was able to overcome those limitations. The founder of the Ramakrishna order, a man called Vivekananda, now the Ramakrishna order has 3,000 monasteries in the world today, and the founder, his first, I don't know if it was his first public speaking, but certainly he was presenting a speech to the Parliament of Religions in Chicago in the 1800s. 
and they had to call his name five times. Fear rooted him to the spot. He couldn't get up and he couldn't speak, having traveled from India to Chicago to speak. So the greatest of people have to overcome limits and overcome difficulties. And reading lives of great people, that's why they're so inspirational. There is a particular need to overcome fear. Fear is just like it's in the atmosphere. We mightn't realize to what extent it's playing its part. We might not realize how much of the life is governed by fear, how much of what we do, how much of what we don't do is all somehow connected with fear. And the way to overcome fear is to step over it, to face it. As we face fear, it shrinks. As we pull back from it, it grows, I'm afraid. So you step over fear by always doing what we're afraid to do. The more we do it, the more the fear will recede. Fear cannot exist in the actual experience. It's only in the imagination. Think of any time that fear is working or operating. It's an imaginary thing. It's something going on in our minds. If my daughter's not home at the right time when she says, I can imagine anything. The fact that she's already upstairs in bed is irrelevant. I can imagine anything. Which has happened. There may be a particular individual way you could come at that. It would be very good to decide that fear is not going to rule this life. The fifth aspect is the present moment. When the mind is in the present, it is naturally full of confidence. When it is in the past or the future, then I'm afraid the false confidence or low confidence gets into the mix. Knowledge arises in the present moment, and when the mind is present, it knows with certainty what is to be done and how it is to be done. In the present moment, there is no attachment to results. Attachment to results splits the mind between execution of an action and the outcome of the action. This split is what causes doubt to arise. And once doubt arises, then confidence is lessened. And the sixth and final aspect is really understanding the law. Nisargadatta, he was a famous teacher from India, said this, the outcome of any event is determined by innumerable factors of which your efforts are merely one. And a good example is I left Dublin today at half three and I struggled to get here for about quarter past seven. So the outcome of any event is determined by innumerable factors of which your efforts are merely one. There were so many factors, I couldn't control the accidents that happened on the, on the motorway and the, the various police blockages and detours and stoppages that took place today. It means we're not in control of anything. We cannot really make anything happen. We cannot demand that we be alive tomorrow. In fact, you couldn't guarantee me you'll make the tea break alive. Could you? In writing. 
We cannot make someone love us. We can work hard, but we can't guarantee success. We don't possess the gift of prophecy. Some people could work very little and be very wealthy and very successful. It might be our loss to work very hard all our lives and make nothing. We don't really know. Given that we're not in control and that we do not possess the gift of prophecy, we might imagine life to be full of uncertainty and thus how can we have confidence in anything? The wise know that everything works under law. Understand law and we know how everything operates. Follow or obey the law and the law will yield its fruits faithfully. The fruits of law are happiness, freedom and peace. We do not need to know the particular, we need to know the universal. And the law is universal. In mathematics, if we know the laws of multiplication, then we can handle any sum, known or unknown, in total confidence. Likewise, if we know the law, then we can handle any situation. Nothing succeeds as planned, but it does succeed or fail according to law. So when we know and practice laws like ask and you shall receive, as you sow, so shall you reap, and all the laws under which the universe operates, then we could act in total confidence. The accountant knows that the double entry bookkeeping system means that both sides must balance. He has total confidence in that, and if it does not, then he knows in full confidence that there is an error and that the error can be remedied and also that on being remedied it will balance. So just to conclude, ordinarily the human being does not live in accordance with the truth about himself. Not knowing this, we live a life below possibilities. We may hide our light under a bushel and fear and doubt are never far away. Really, to be truly confident, we need to discover who we are. That's really the simplicity of it, to discover who I am in truth. As was said at the beginning, the truth of man is that he is eternal, unchanging, limitless, free, conscious, blissful, full of knowledge and always peaceful. To realize this, to know this in experience would be to live a life of true confidence. Living in full confidence, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So to be truly confident, we need to discover who we are. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You're welcome back. So it's really over to you to ask any questions about the talk as it was presented, or anything at all, really.
could you say something about the law, the six points you made there about growing confidence, understanding the law? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? A direct and immediate and easy accessible way of looking at it is that everything is working under law and then you have the way I want everything to work and the way I want things to unfold and they're often at odds. So if you take a very simple example, I may overeat and still think I'm going to stay slim. But the law works in such a way that if I disobey laws of measure, I'm going to suffer the consequences no matter what I think. If I understood the law of measure in relation to the appetites, there would be a greater intelligence applied at that time, and I would then reap the benefits. So in other words, understanding measure with regard to the appetites and abiding by that law and regulation would allow for a much more true and happy outcome. Whereas disobeying those laws, we know the consequences, don't we? Is that enough? Yes, yeah, thank you. That's good. Yeah. You could also look at it on the basis of, there's a lovely story which might suit here actually. I don't know if you've heard the story of the hundred bandits, the hundred villagers and the hundred beans, have you? Now you're in for a real treat, aren't you? <laughs> this is a great little story. It's about this obedience to law. So the hundred bandits lived up in the woods, you see, and they would come down into the village all together and raid the hundred villagers and steal all their beans and retreat back up into the woods and enjoy a great feast and leave the villagers completely destitute. You have the picture? And, as is often the case in these circumstances, a holy man appears among the bandits. And he starts to teach them various things, and one thing he starts to talk to them about is no perceptible harm. They should be able to perform their duties and live their lives with no perceptible harm. Okay? So they went around the place up in the woods, they were reciting this, learning it off by heart, no perceptible harm, no perceptible harm. So... But the first bandit went down to the village and he decided he would just take one bean from each of the villagers. So, no perceptible harm. You'd hardly even notice it, would you? So, he's now living a very good life under the guidance of a holy man, maybe even studying philosophy, and he's performing his actions and there's no perceptible harm. But each bandit came down and took one bean from each of the villagers. And each of the bandits thought they were performing their actions with no perceptible harm. But what was the end result? The village was still destitute. And it could be like that we think we could disobey the law ever so slightly. No perceptible harm. I worked out there. If the workforce, all the workforce in Ireland took home one paperclip a day, what do you think it would be in a year? Just throw out a figure. It's in the millions. It's a surprisingly high figure. And it's like that, you know. I think I can disobey the law and, in a way, get away with it. 
in a way. So I can speed a little and get away with it. I can take the paper clip and get away with it. I can go down to the village and take just one bean from every villager and get away with it. But the law operates. It's a good story, isn't it? hundred bandits, the hundred beans. Very good for children if you're trying to tell them that their actions count. But I only did. Or, sorry, never mind the children, for ourselves. Similar question, but are there any particular laws that you think, for reasons of ignorance or whatever, that we consistently violate, but unwittingly? Well, one that I find intriguing, and I'm recently doing my own research here, and I find it particularly interesting, is this idea of do unto others as you would have that do unto you. The law is called the golden rule. It's in every tradition. I don't think there's a single tradition that doesn't quote it in some way or other. So if you take that as an expression of natural law, do unto others as you would have that do unto you. Now if you ask me, do I live like that? I would think generally, yes. Do you live like that? Yeah. So we would assent to that, wouldn't we? We would say, we generally live like that. Well, I would have a look at that <laughs> and really examine it. And do I actually treat every human being in every situation exactly as I would love to be treated all day, every day? How much of the time am I actually living in accordance with that law? Apparently, that one law contains the entire so there must be more to it than we might on first investigation discover. If all laws are contained or reflected in that one in particular, there's a fair bit of evidence out there suggests that something's not quite right. If everything's contained in this law, we all generally think we're maybe adhering to it and there's a lot going wrong. So things like I found myself on the motorway, for example, and you know when you're sitting behind somebody who's driving a little slowly in the outside lane? You familiar with that? It's probably you that's doing it, is it? <laughs> anyway, there's a few of you out there today, I can tell you. You're there, and what's the view of the person who's driving slowly? Is it a loving view, is it? So what's your view of them? Yes, it's a critical view, isn't it? Now I found myself there with the critic of you and I looked in my rear vision mirror and what was I doing? I was doing exactly the same thing. So it's interesting to investigate that. How do you really treat every individual that you interact with and how do we really treat each other in families, in work situations, total strangers? How much of this is a concept do unto others and how much of it is really something that actually informs our actions and our speech and the way we <coughs> behave. Is that enough? That's a good one. Yeah, no, I think it's a good one to look at. A very good one. Brian, you alluded to the fact that children have a natural confidence. They don't understand fear properly as we know, you know older people. And, and, and I think it's a beautiful trait. It's mm. lovely. Mm. But unfortunately, we, older people and society, bring them into what I call the real world, which isn't the real world in terms of philosophical concepts. How then do we keep 
that lovely confidence in them and engage in actual day-to-day living without ruining their natural confidence. Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is that we would have to be connected to it in some way ourselves. It would be very hard to encourage a child to remain true to himself or herself, coming from the position of falsehood ourselves. It's like speaking to a child about something but not actually enacting it yourself. So I think there's a big responsibility on us as adults to actually make that connection with our essence, our true self. Children should see us as an example of that. And there's a far greater possibility that they will then connect, because our children do pick up from us, don't they? For better or for worse, and some of that's for better. It's not all bad, and it's not all doom and gloom. So your children do pick up a lot from you. So the more connected we are to that true self, and the more it shows in us, the better. I'm sure you've heard the story of the holy man and the chocolate, have you? No. God, haven't lived down here really, have you? <laughs> Come on, beans, chocolate. There was the, the mother whose child wouldn't stop eating chocolate, you see. So she decided she'd bring the child to see a wise man, a teacher. And wherever this took place, she had to walk. It took a long time to get there. Days trekking. Bring the child to the holy man, you see. She presented her child in front of the holy man and she explained the dilemma and she asked the holy man to tell the child to stop eating chocolates. So the holy man said, could you bring the child back in about a week or maybe two weeks? So the lady went off and trekked all the way home, trekked all the way back again two weeks later and once again presented the child and the holy man said, now, stop eating chocolates. And the lady was horrified and said, is is that it? The holy man said, yes, that's it. And why didn't you say this to my son two weeks ago? Save me all this trekking back and forward. And he said, because I had to stop first. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're much more inclined to say, stop eating chocolates to the child. And when they're in their bed, we're sitting there eating chocolates. I think that's much more, isn't it? So there is a need for us to be the same on the inside and the outside. If you want to encourage children to be truly confident, you have to be coming from a place of that true confidence yourself. Okay, well that leads me into the question I had. We are fortunate here that we've learned to embrace philosophy in our lives. And as you know, we were discussing at the interval about the philosophy school has a school in Dublin. Would it not be advantageous if there was, in the education curriculum, an optional, and I'm thinking of high school level, philosophical subject or input? And is there any plan to doing about it? Well, the, the school doesn't go on a mission. No, no. The straight answer is I don't know. I mean, in, in the education system, introduce the subject of philosophy. I think it's in some schools. Is it? There are some moves and there are some links between the teachers in John Scotus School in Dublin and other schools through various bodies like the bodies that govern teachers or the bodies that govern principals. I think there are some links. And sometimes people from the school are invited to speak at teachers' conferences of one kind or another, so there's some, some connection. 
mean, I don't work in that world. I have no connection with it, so I'm not sure really of how that would ever come about. I'm probably espousing it as a good idea. Well, you better do something about it then. Feel the fear and do it anyway. <laughs> True? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. To have true confidence and confidence in yourself, I find you have to have experience. So say, for example, your friends come over for dinner and you're cooking a new recipe and you're thinking, will it work? And what if it doesn't? But if it does, then you have confidence the next time to do that recipe again. So I suppose I just wonder, like the child who naturally has confidence, I'm just sort of struggling, how can I gain that confidence? I feel through experience I can with certain aspects. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Experience is like situational confidence. If you take your own example, the more you cook, the more confident you are in that particular situation. But it's very situation-related and event-related. You couldn't call that true confidence. It's just confidence related to cooking. It's like we've said, it's a a situational thing. True confidence is whether the meal worked out or not, you see. And the guests arrive and there's no meal. And you're saying, the meal didn't work out? Here, have a glass of wine. Here's, here's a ham sandwich. <laughs> to be unaffected by the event and then respond creatively and intelligently and to respond brilliantly. The more yourself you are, the more creative you would be, the more natural would be the response. If a child's meal didn't work out, what do they do? In fact, it happened the other night in our house. My daughter decided she was going to make biscuits. And she's 12, 13, you see. All I remember is she went off with 20 euro to buy the ingredients. <laughs> and she came back and she made the biscuits. A short time later, she's in sitting down in the front room, you see. And I said, how are the biscuits? All burnt. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what do you mean all burnt? I wasn't thinking of the biscuits. I was thinking of my 20 euro. <laughs> but there was absolutely not an ounce of difficulty about this. <laughs> And she didn't even try to hide them. I went out there and there they were, little black discs. <laughs> she wasn't making those biscuits wondering what they're going to taste like, what are they going to look like, what's daddy and mummy going to think when they eat them, are they going to like them, will they say thank you, and all the other things that we might get up to. She was just making biscuits, didn't work out, they're all burnt. <laughs> the true self or essence is limitless, free, eternal, free from fear, free from worry, free from concern about what you think or I think and what everyone else is thinking. So much of life is governed by what other people think and it's worse than that, it's what I think other people think. If I don't have the dinner, etc, etc, you know. Now, it's not to become totally careless with other people. If you invite them to dinner, you invite them to dinner. Do the best, but it's to try and be really true and confident and true to yourself, whatever's happening, rather than some sort of crazy lunatic trying to prepare a dinner. And I suppose that's, you know, with children as well, it's the confidence to make the right decision if you have to make a decision for them or with them. 
if you haven't been through that experience before, if you're a first time parent and you're trying to make a decision about sort of what the best thing to do is. In what sort of a situation are you thinking there? Maybe if you're deciding a school, maybe let's yeah. say for a child to go to, yeah. and you're not 100% sure whether that school would be the right school, or that's just, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Or yeah, no, that's all right. Well, you know, you do your investigation. Confidence shouldn't end up as nothing matters. Real confidence wouldn't just be it doesn't matter what we do or it doesn't matter where the child goes. You would do your investigation and you'd find the very best available. As we've probably all discovered in one way or another, 99% of the education is through the parents. The ideal is a good combination of parents and teacher. You know, where there's a unity between those two. But it would appear, the evidence is, that the majority of the education comes from the parents. It's a big responsibility on us. Okay. Do you recognise how much of the time we are governed by what other people think? That would be a good one to decide to stop, wouldn't it? I don't know if you're familiar with the man Warren Buffett. He's a wealthy American investor and now a philanthropist as well. He's donated a lot of his wealth to charity. He talks very amusingly in his biography, autobiography, about having an internal scorecard and only having an internal scorecard, not an external one. I found it a really attractive idea. And he speaks of, would you like to be a good person and have the whole world perceive you as a bad person? Or would you prefer to have the whole world think you're a good person when you're actually a bad person? And he throws out this little proposition, a bit of a teaser really. But in that part of the book he talks about just having an internal scorecard, and that is holding fast to something internally. You know, are you being true to yourself, or are you living in the shadow of others' perceptions and others' ideas and others' views of us and imagined views most of the time? I found it very useful, very helpful just to get that sense of having a, a rock-solid internal reference point rather than being concerned with the imagined and speculative views of others. So an internal scorecard. So you could all try it really, you could all prepare a dinner, make a complete hames of it, invite people around and see how you cope with, <laughs> see how you cope with them. In the six ways to gain true confidence, you gave an example of develop the heart, examples of truly great people. Mm. Is there one you'd recommend reading about? There's Mother Teresa, there's Nelson Mandela's life. Francis of Assisi is a very good life to read. That's very inspiring. There's a lovely version by a man called Adrian House. I just found it a very good read and very inspiring. Like when Francis of Assisi started work, he thought he was receiving a direction from God to rebuild the church, and he understood it meant physically. So his first work was to go down and start physically building this church with stones and cement and... It took him a while to realise that, that it wasn't a physical thing he was supposed to be addressing. It's a very inspiring. 
There's lots of good, inspiring lives. Mandela's a great read. Gandhi's life story is a very inspirational read. What you find when you read these lives is, you know, they have to overcome greater difficulties than maybe you and I have to meet. You could often be fooled into thinking some of these great people have it easy for some reason. It's okay for Mother Teresa, look who she is. Do you know what I mean? You can be inclined to think that they have it easy, but if you read the life, it's very inspirational. And you discover that it's not like what we think. can restore confidence in you by reading these great lives. Man's Search for Meaning. There's some very good good reads. Have you read that? Victor Frankl. What's the main cause of us being untrue to ourselves? It's a good question. We forget who we are and what we are. And we do create this image. And we're trying to satisfy that image. So if I think I am a body and a mind and a heart, I do think that satisfaction and happiness will come from looking after that body, mind and heart in a worldly sense. So if I forget the truth about myself, I spend my life trying to satisfy, if you like, a false self. You can't be true to yourself if you're trying to satisfy a false self. So I, I engage in acquisition and trying to satisfy the appetites and trying to acquire things and trying to look after this image, this ego. So you could say the main cause is forgetfulness. I forget the truth about myself. I adopt a false image of myself and off I go. So I forget that I'm complete, for instance, and I forget that I'm perfect. I forget that I'm already whole. I don't need anything to make me whole. And yet, I could spend my whole life trying to acquire things to make me complete. So forgetfulness is the main cause. But all right. Any more? Brian, you spoke about fear and that it may play a larger role in the character than one might realise. Can you say any more about how one sees that or becomes aware of that fear or what one would look out for Mm. to see is the life governed by fear? Yeah. Yeah, I'm often surprised just how much of the life has fear governing it. You You might enter a room, for instance, and you might gravitate and move over here and speak with say Austin, not realizing that it's a fear of others that sends you in that direction. It might look simple enough on the surface. Does that make sense? But you mightn't even know that this fear is actually pushing you over here. Like once I think I'm an individual, separate from you and separate from you, there's going to be some fear involved. The very fact that I think you're other and different from me creates a little fear. You're other, you're different, you could be better, you could be worse, which means I'm better or worse. There is a statement, I think it's in the Upanishads, where there is other, there is fear. So that means there's fear everywhere. (laughs) You could examine the life, you could examine where you put things off, can often be the result of fear. 
where you avoid things could be the result of fear. So putting off things, avoiding things, avoiding opportunities. You know, we operate within a kind of a comfort zone area. The edge of it is often discomfort. So where there's a little discomfort sometimes, there's often a little warning sign, a little indication. I spoke to a man some time back who said he was he was in the, I think it was the RDS at some seminar, and he thought the speaker was outstanding. And he wanted to go up and say, well done. He couldn't go up and just say, well done. And you might notice that fear is governing, because you might think, oh, well, sure, I won't go up. So you'd have to be aware and mindful and check and have a look at, you know, are you moving at your own pleasure and are you free to speak and free to act? Or, you know, you've been buffeted around the place by fears of one kind or another. I think if you have a look, you kind of see it in a way, see yourself avoiding, postponing, procrastinating. Do you recognize it? And, you know, you're in company and you, you know, you, you may think this person's better than you and so you're not so good and that can bring a little bit of fear as a result of the comparison we spoke of in the talk there. You mentioned this. As long as there's separation, there will always be some bit of fear mm. there. In the school, though, we're encouraged to step over fear. And I'm just wondering how you bring those together in terms of, is the stepping over a development or a refinement of the character? Did you eventually get to that point where there's no separation? Is it just to realize that the fear doesn't really exist? Yeah, it's a bit of both, really. Stepping over the fear is a kind of a practical day-to-day -day working instruction you can work with. But once you step over fear, the realization of the untruthfulness or the imaginary nature of it can be fully known about. So it's a simple practical instruction and yet you can discover something quite good. Well, you can discover the truth about yourself if you step over fear. But if you come at it the other way and realize that you and I are the same, that has exactly the same effect. So one is a practical workaday type instruction, one is more of an instruction to the mind, not to think of you as different from me. There's an instruction given in the philosophy class somewhere, don't allow the mind to think of anyone as other than myself. See, we're going around all the time saying, you're other than me, you're other than me, you're other, you're other, you're other. You could be good others and bad others and different others and nice others and not so nice others. If you look at it, there's a, a constant kind of a judgment and a, a labeling and a going on all the time. Not allowing the mind to think like that. Not allowing the mind to keep seeing other, different. Like little children, you know the little children meet. What happens when little tiny children meet? They're totally open. They're totally open. You know, you go to some stranger's house and the little children have met and they've gone off to the room and they're playing. And you're still on stage seven of the small talk. You know, it's kind of... There's a whole getting to know and... 
they just meet each other and they just play. There is a point where they don't see separate. They don't see difference. They don't see from a prejudice point of view. Or, But we could do the very same. You know when you're on holidays and someone says, you see your man over there, he's from Ireland. What do you do? You go over and talk to them, don't you? Well, he could have been walking down the street in Limerick the previous week and you, <laughs> and you ignored him. Suddenly there's an idea, you see. It tells you how powerful ideas are. Because you get an idea of sameness. That's what happens. So you're on holidays and someone says, that man there is Irish. You immediately think sameness. You don't think different. And off you go and you go over and you have a great old chat. Now if I came down to Limerick and said, see that man over there, he's Irish. You'd say, yeah, and what's so what? <laughs> what are you trying to do? You would think this is very strange. So seeing separate, seeing different, seeing other, black, white, think of all the differences that we see. Leinster, Munster. <laughs> Going through life, don't we really have to, we say, avoid, take different courses with different people like me, you know? But it may appear like that on the surface, that avoidance is good, and perhaps there are occasions where you wouldn't consciously and purposely put yourself in harm's way. But a lot of the trouble is internal. Even the so-called external trouble has an internal uh, source or origin. I remember walking up to a, a chip shop one evening and sitting on a railing outside the chip shop were four or five characters who looked a bit unsavoury. And as I approached, I saw in my own attitude, if you like, a sense of criticism and a little apprehension. I just parked it and said, how's it going, lads? And we had this great exchange. You could see at the time that had I decided to go with the critical, apprehensive attitude, that would have been a very, very different exchange. I could have found myself in trouble, in fact. You wouldn't put yourself in harm's way, consciously, and yet a lot of the trouble that we so-called meet in the other party can actually be coming from us. Do you not think your first reaction was just natural? Your system was telling you to protect yourself? Maybe so. There may be some element in that. And there are times when you know to follow that too, and you know maybe not to go there, yes. not to be unintelligent about things. But I found it curious, and I still find it curious, that a lot of the trouble comes from here. I wouldn't say go out and find dangerous situations now, but just have a look at the level of prejudice and criticism and impatience and intolerance that actually comes from here when interacting with people. And if that were let go and there was no divisions and no requirements on people, what would that be like? Like the Maharishi, the man who brought transcendental meditation to the West, someone in the audience said, uh, but what would you do now if someone came to you and held a gun up to your head? You see, there were talking and asking questions a bit like you are there. 
And he just said, I would simply change the thoughts in their minds. You're supposed to find that amazing. Well, I did have a gun to my head, actually. Oh, good. And did you think like that? No, I can actually. Yeah, no, good. And what happened? He robbed us all and he went away. Right. He robbed you of your possessions and went away. But you remained calm. I did, yes. Yeah. Good. And the effect? You mean afterwards? The effect on the incident and on the, the burglar, or the robber, or was there any noticeable effect? Well, that we all survived the incident. Well, I think that's a good example. You may have found that if you didn't remain calm, that might have been a different incident. Yes, that would have been a different Yeah. That gives you a hint. A lot of our troubles here. Yeah. Like I was in a company recently, and this lady said that she's been in the organization four months, big organization, and 1,200 people, staff, and no one's spoken to her. It's not very nice, is it? So, we had this discussion, a little meeting arranged, you see, and this was her dilemma, that she's there four months. And I could see how it would happen. There's a big, long corridor in this firm, and it's a pharmaceutical firm, and everyone's walking around in white uniforms and white gloves, and it's all very sterilized and clean. And you're walking around with plastic things over your shoes, and it's all very interesting <laughs> and clinical. And you walk up and down this corridor, and it's a little bit robotic, you know. And then there's a big line coming that way, and the corridor just allows the two lines. So it's a bit like a conveyor belt, you see? So, what do you think I asked her? Yeah, and what did she say? No. So I said, what we're going to do, Eileen, is we're going to go for a walk down the corridor, and everyone is going to say hello to us. You see? And that's what happened. <laughs> and we just walked down the corridor. I just glued my eyes to them. I made sure they looked at us. <laughs> but it was just open to the possibility that everybody will say hello, and that's what happened. And all you do is open your face and look. But if you're walking around thinking, no one's saying hello to me, no one's saying hello to me, no one's going to say hello to you. But you're not saying hello to anyone. The trouble we store up for ourselves is endless. About six months after that, I got a little card from her telling me she was marrying one of the guys who was woken up and down. <laughs> sure, it's true. That's true. No, that, no, seriously, that is true. And hello. She obviously took it too far. And then, a year later, I got another little card, and a little baby was born. <laughs> the story goes on, I know. And they called her Brian. No, 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 no. <laughs> now that's too far. <laughs> no, no. It's in another talk, I remember, I'd be paraphrasing, but at the end of the Second World War, a revered guru was asked, what did he think of the victory of the Allies, you see? And they got a very unexpected answer. He spoke about the real victory is by conquering the enemy within. 
and until you conquer the enemy within, there will always be enemies without. And he described us all as having this hexagon within ourselves, a hexagon which was made up of anger, ambition, and four others which I, I'm not going to remember here now. Greed, envy, jealousy. There were six hexagons, six aspects to it. And until that is dealt with within, there will always be enemies without. And that was the essence of it. And you could see that as a mammoth challenge or task, or you could begin just to look, what does that mean? This evening, what does that mean? Let go of the judgments, let go of the criticisms, let go of the prejudice of, of each other. And when you're watching the match tomorrow and Leinster are winning, just enjoy. <laughs> enjoy the match. Love, love the visitors. <laughs> Well, actually, I don't mind who is. See, I enjoy both of them, actually, truthfully. It's true. Any more? I just wondered, uh, will it be possible if your daughter at 16 or 15 came home with somebody with tattoos and earrings, would it be possible to be without prejudice? No. <laughs> I have a son who's 14 at the moment. He's gone through quite a number of phases. There are so many things he's asked, could he do, that I have said that he can't do them when he's 21. That when he's 21, I'm really afraid to think what he's going to look like. <laughs> this is interesting, isn't it? Because we will be challenged on those occasions. If you are presented with those, you have to see what is being presented. I don't know if it's reasonable to allow a tattoo be the entire guidance that you would give your children, but certainly my children know that if they come home with any jewellery in any part of their body other than their earlobe, and any tattoos on their body, it's... <laughs> <laughs> These are challenges, I know. Even if you're, you know, not allowing such a union, you can still do that without the prejudice, without the judgment, without the criticism. It's like when you see your own children behaving badly, you can correct them without criticism, without judgment, or you can correct them with criticism and judgment. So even when you have to administer what appears like restriction or punishment indeed, that can be delivered and executed without all the prejudice and without all the criticism. So you could stop your daughter or son having a relationship without prejudice and without criticism, or you could do it with prejudice and criticism. Does that make sense? You quoted earlier on Catherine of Siena where she said, if we, where we should be. If you are the person you, you should person be, you should you'll set, set the, the world, world on fire, yeah. Is there any way of knowing how we would know where we should be. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Well, you could look at it in terms of all the different roles we play, like the different roles of father, mother, employer, employee, friend, school of philosophy student. You could look at all the different roles you play. How fully do we play those roles? Do we bring those to the highest possible 
the standard in every single way? Or do we fall short in some way? That could be one little stock take we could do. Like, am I the best husband that could ever possibly be on the planet? Do I really give that my every single attention? Are the best father? Or do I look for an easy life as a father? Do I go in the back door purposely so that I can leave them alone and find a TV somewhere where they're not going to find me? <laughs> you could look at it that way. I must say, it really struck me, that statement, when I saw it. It was very amusing where I saw it. I was out walking one evening in Wexford and I came across a little village in generally in darkness. It was quiet, winter. There was one garage open in this village and the church was in darkness and I wanted to find somewhere to meditate, you see? So I went over to the door of the church and lo and behold, it was open. So I went into the church and I closed the door behind me. I turned on all the lights and I sat down in the church and I was the only person there, you see? and meditating away, enjoying myself in this village on my own in the church. And when I opened my eyes, that was what was written on this little tapestry hanging in front of the altar in this church. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. The effect it had here was like what I'm saying. In all the different roles, how fully are you fulfilling those different roles? That's really what hit me about it. Where do I hold back? Where do I shrink instead of shine? But do it with a light touch. When you say you can set the world on fire, is there not two ways to you see that? I mean, one sort of set the world on fire and it's a huge ego trip and everybody is saying, oh, God, you're great. Or the other one is by accepting yourself for who you are, by understanding who you are and all of that that you're happy within yourself and the setting the world on fire is something that happens within you rather than outside of you if you, if you can grasp it. I'm sure you could hear it a number of different ways. My understanding of that statement in particular is that there may be a little bit of hiding the light under the bushel. If you were the person you should be, there would be no hiding your light under a bushel. You would rise to every occasion, you would rise to the challenge in every particular role that we find ourselves in. I got the feeling, looking at it and reading it, that it's more than just being happy in yourself. What else do you hear from that statement? If you are the person you should be, you'll set the world on fire. Now, what do you hear in that? Yeah, it's limitless, and the world should be on fire somehow. Now, hands up those in the room whose world's on fire at the moment. <laughs> so, seriously, I found it very challenging. I mean, the very first thing that struck me when I saw it was, God, my world's not on fire. What's going on here? What are you up to, Brian? Your world's not on fire, so what's going on here? If there's some truth in this statement, what are you at? Where are you falling short? Where are you not rising? Where are you hiding your light? Yeah. That phrase does suggest that at some level we do know that there is a shortfall, that there is a gap between where I am now and, and what I could, what the potential is. That's known at a level. Yeah. It could show itself as dissatisfaction. I think you're right. There is some appreciation that we might not be rising and delivering on how much we could deliver. 
Yeah, kind of in the same discussion then. If you're aspiring to be giving your everything and sort of trying to fulfil these different roles, these different hats that you feel that you're trying to live and fulfil, but at the same time realising that you're perfect the way you are and that you're whole the way you are, is there a danger or a conflict that the aspiration that you constantly feel that you're not fulfilled and that you're not getting there or is it that you're trying to convince yourself that it is about the journey and not the destination or is there a danger that you'll conflict yourself into thinking that you'll just never get there? And there's probably loads of dangers in all of this but the idea is to discover the truth about yourself. That's the real work and the playing field is all the different roles we play. Now, the more you try and play those roles fully, the more that aids the discovery of the truth about yourself as well. Because you have to step over a lot of difficulties to play the role fully. All sorts of limiting ideas and fears and doubts and notions and there's all sorts of restrictions and limitations that one has to step over if one is going to play their role fully in every situation. Now, in stepping over those limitations, you also discover that which is true in you. It's like, this sounds a bit casual, but it's like two birds with one stone. Discover the truth about myself. Use all the different situations and roles I'm in to do that. By bringing them to the highest possible standard we can bring them to. You know, like in any of the roles that we find ourselves, there's loads of things we would prefer not to have to do, aren't there? Get out there and do them all. You'll discover an awful lot about yourself and you will be playing the role brilliantly. And you might be even setting the world on fire. You happy to go home? Is that all right? Is that okay? Thank you very much, folks. Thank you.